this podcast is supported by you, the listeners. And with a small monthly donation, you can help sustain future episodes of this podcast, like our good friend, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being a, a supporter of this show. And to do that, if you wanted to do that, because we'd love for you to do that, is check out the link in the show notes. Just click that link or visit our Anchor podcast page and support us that way. It really does help the show out. Another thing you could do is leave us those messages. You can become part of the show and we'll answer your email and play your voicemail on the show by visiting our site, also in the show notes, where you can leave us a voicemail, anchor.fm forward slash Podcast forward slash message. You can even send us emails as well. We'll get into that into the show. But once again, thank you to our supporters just like you. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this episode on all your podcast platforms and leave us those five-star ratings. We love that. We would appreciate it so much if you do so. Of course, that is if we earned it, and we certainly hope to do that every single week. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney. With your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome once again to the show that talks about all things Disney. I'm El John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars and pop culture fan. And you're here. We're going to discuss films, theme parks, attractions, books, and a special interview with a special guest and much, much more. Dave, I'm looking at you. Oh, thank you, Al John. I'm, I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as uh, like us on uh, Facebook, uh, follow us really on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any questions, send us those questions. We're going to address them on the air, and we're going to do that today, right? Al John, absolutely. We're, I just would say, if you have a question, you want us to discuss a topic, email us at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Al John A L J O N at SkullRockPodcast.com. And with that, let's get this show on the road, Al John. There's a lot of big news this week. Yes, yeah, speaking of news. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Oh, man, Dave, the hits just keep coming. They really are. I mean, uh, Disney announced a major reorganization around uh, they're going to focus on their streaming platform. Mm, man, I, it's interesting how quickly, when I say quickly, I mean, you know, this has been going on, the restructuring, the layoffs, the furloughs. They've been happening since this whole shutdown happened. But in a statement given this week by Disney CEO Bob Chapek, he said, given the incredible success of Disney Plus and plans to accelerate our direct-to-consumer business, we're strategically positioning our company to effectively support growth strategy and increase shareholder value. And that means... It's all the way to the top, restructuring with a focus on Disney Plus. 
That's right. I, I wonder, I can't help but wonder if this has been uh, uh, somewhat of a response back to Dan Loeb, the fund manager who sent the company a letter uh, last week uh, telling them that they should spend the dividend uh, on more content for Disney+. Plus. I, I think so. I think that's where people understand that this is going to continue. Um, it's going to be difficult, I think, in, in the next few, probably in the next year to have the type of stability in terms of the movie business as it currently is, which is just theaters. Yeah. You know, I, the one thing I have to say, and, and, and Al John, uh, I don't know if you, if you thought about this, but uh, so many people because of the pandemic are staying at home and they're watching and they're subscribing and watching to all of these streaming platforms. I can't help but think how many people are going to cancel some of those services when we come out of this pandemic and say, I spent a year on as a couch potato watching all of these shows. I want to get out and do things. I want to go on vacation. I want to go here and there. I think the I think the parks are going to do phenomenal business once this pandemic ends. Don't you? Well, I agree. And also in this time where families are struggling to make ends meet, they are very specific and choosy as to what services they will subscribe to. Those that have the best content, those that have the most current content are going to win. And so with this strategy in effect, you know, for example, my family, Dave, I don't subscribe to Netflix all the time. I subscribe when I think something's good, Come, there's something good coming out. So if Stranger Things comes out, I'm there, I re-up my subscription, but I just let my CBS subscription lapse because... I'm done with Star Star Trek. I was going to say you yeah. finished watching Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, finished watching Star Trek, so I'm good, right? I, so so yeah. then, you know, if there is a show on Apple or whatever, it, it's you have to be strategic. And right now I'm getting ready to watch The Boys on Amazon, you know, that uh, that's great. Love that show. That's what I'm going to watch. And just recently, uh, my wife and I just binged watched the entire uh, last season of The Walking Dead on AMC. So then we're done with that. We know that this is what we need to kind of cram into a very small amount of time and then we'll binge watch it and then move on. And I would think that a lot of Americans, a lot of people, maybe even globally, subscribe to that. When there's something good that they want to watch, they will subscribe and then they will unsubscribe and then they will only come back when the content's hot. I absolutely agree with you. I think that a lot of people are doing that. I think that they'll pay for a service for a month or two and then cancel it and then switch to another service. And so there's going to be a lot of that going on. But you said something very important, and it's so true. Content is king. That's really where it's at. Content is king. And Dan Loeb, when he sent his letter to Disney, uh, hit the nail on the head. You got to get more content onto Disney Plus. So hopefully they're they're going to be working on that. But let's move us along because I, I did want to mention real briefly that I, I was sad to see that there's even more layoffs happening. I think there was a few thousand more people laid off down in Orlando at, at Walt Disney World and 
10% of the workforce at uh, SeaWorld has been laid off, uh, yeah. which is sad. Very, very sad. And our heart does go out to everybody that is being affected by these things. I I you know, found out this past week a bunch of folks that I know that work over at the Imagineering Division at Disney uh, got their notices. They got what they called the call, the phone call. So very sad. And again, we, we feel for you. It is. It's a really, really tough time for the industry, whether you're in restaurants, whether you're if you're serving people, vacation industries, theme parks, it's just rough all the way around. So we, you know, our hearts are with you. You have our support. And if we can lend a hand by giving you some you know, little entertainment, edutainment, as Walt used to say, then that's great. You know, and uh, our hearts are with you. And, uh, you know, feel free to reach out and let us know how you're doing. Uh, via the email. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, with that, uh, we have a very special guest, don't we? Absolutely. Uh, Let's hit it. Yeah. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, we are so happy to have with us Mark Waters. I think he's a legend. And you know why? Because he's got so many credits to his name. Six-time Emmy Award-winning composer and conductor, 400 over 400 TV shows. He is the music governor on the Academy's Board of Governors. That would be the governorship. He would be the governor, governor. And he is quite talented. He's got a laundry list, a huge list of credits to his name. Please welcome Mark Waters. Hello, governor. Hello, governor. Nice to be here chatting with you boys. You know, Al John, I, I, I do want to say really quickly, though, Mark and I are dear friends. Uh, Mark and I have worked together now, what, for like 20 plus years? 20, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. 20 when years. When was um, uh, The Cat Who Would Be King? Uh, that was the first. Uh, oh, that was 2004. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was for the 50th anniversary of Mary Poppins. Yep. And oh, I think wow. that's probably the, yeah, that is the first job we worked on together, right? Mm-hmm. That was fabulous. Yeah, and uh, and it's been downhill from there. No, I know what uh, happened. <laughs> I, I, I did, I did, I did the best I could. <laughs> no, but I, I think what's amazing, Mark, is that you have such a varied career. Uh, you've not only done uh, film work, you've done uh, TV, uh, you've done uh, direct to DVD, you've done theater, uh, you've done uh, documentaries, uh, you've gone out conducting. Conducting uh, Star Wars uh, concerts. Uh, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. And I think really I would like you to tell our audience uh, how you started out um, uh, because you, you initially were working with John Williams, weren't you? Well, no, I didn't meet John until um, um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be hired to be the music director of the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And, of course, John is um, the go-to guy for writing a, a fanfare for uh, events such as the Olympics. And um, so we actually uh, did not meet uh, until the recording session for his fanfare. So it was in 96 that I first met him. Uh, but I, I credit him in a large way of, you know, being the impetus why I wanted to do this. I mean... Uh, Star Wars came out at a very impressionable time for me, um, the summer after I graduated from college in 77. And I saw it, I think, 15 times 
uh, in that summer. I mean, I just could not get enough of it. And, you know, see a movie once, it's because of the movie. See it in a movie twice for me, it's because of the score. So I, I, I saw it 15 times just to hear John's score, as did so many. Uh, you ask any composer my age, and they'll say that it was uh, John's music. Because uh, that was just, uh, you know, right after that, he did Superman, and after that, he did Raiders of the Lost Ark and Close Encounters. So, I mean, he had a huge, huge impression, made a huge impression on me. And, um, you know, I had, I did, uh, I was a, a saxophone major in college. So, I mean, I, I, you know, you had to study theory, but you didn't really study composition. So I kind of came into it late uh, in my um, mid to late 20s. I started um, venturing into uh, really thinking that I could do this. And, um, you know, just bit by bit and built up a career and um, um, managed to get my first credits as um, writing in cartoons for Warner Brothers, actually, on the Tiny Toons um, uh, series. And that then led to um, an opportunity at Disney, and, and I, I just seemed to find a place at Disney. I, I At Warner Brothers, you had to sound exactly like Carl Stalling. I mean, every right. note you chose had to be filtered through that, is this what Carl Stalling would have done? And um, uh, I felt like Disney, even though Disney had a style, there was a, a you know, they wanted you to be uh, free to, you know, be more your own. So I, I, I just found a place at, at Disney. I was very fortunate to um, become friends with the head of music for TV animation, Bambi Moet. And um, uh, she was um, fortunate, you know, I was fortunate to get a lot of work um, uh, from her office and, you know, it just kind of led to, um, you know, project after project. And I'm, you know, extremely grateful. And, uh, you know, I did want to mention, you know, you brought up Carl Stalling while you were working at Warner Brothers. I mean, Carl Stalling was the uh, the first uh, music director for uh, Walt Disney Studios. It's uh, a great story. It, yeah, it, why don't you tell it? Go ahead. Well, I mean, Carl Stalling was a bigger star uh, in those days than Walt Disney was. I mean, he was a legend in Kansas City as a, a silent movie organist, and he, he was just so skillful at at timing things, and um, Walt was uh, was a big fan of his, and so it made, made total sense that when sound came to pictures in 1927, uh, the first person that Walt went to was Carl Stalling, and he did, you know, um, um, uh, the, the skeleton dance and the. Um, um, but he 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 did he did the music for for the first a group of Mickey cartoons and right. then he came up with the concept for the silly symphonies. Yeah, that was his uh, idea. Yeah, an, an animated franchise that was built around music. <laughs> have to marvel at the um, the camaraderie that they must have had, you know, to, you know, propel this great new art form. And um, the story goes that when Walt wanted to move out to um, Los Angeles, he encouraged uh, Carl Stalling to come with him. And Stalling said, you know, I got a pretty good thing going here in Kansas City. I don't want to pack up my family and move out to, for what, what is it called? The film industry? I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, or the, the talking animation industry. So um, in order to get Walt or in order to get Stalling to do it, he had to give him 10% ownership of Walt Disney Pictures. That was how Walt was able to get people to work for him. Wow. Wow. So imagine 
so that was enough to get him um, uh, to come out to Los Angeles. And so they come out to Los Angeles. They're, they're doing work, but there wasn't enough work to keep stalling afloat. So he naively took a job uh, on a project with a competitor. And when um, Walt heard about it, he was furious and just said, I, w I, I want you gone. You're never working for me again. And I want to buy back that 10% ownership. And the reason I know about this is um, a musician that I worked with a lot, and you, you know him, Rick Baptist. Oh, yeah, great, Rick. Great trumpet player. He was a licensed auctioneer broker, meaning he wasn't the guy that did the auctions, but he had clients that he would uh, hook up with auctions that were going on, whether it be, you know, cars or vintage wine or art. But this was a documents auction. And they sent out a, um, a you know, a, a flyer about what the documents were going to be at this particular auction. It was a, a letter of Thomas Jefferson, a grocery list that was written by, um, you know, a, a famous movie star uh, or whatever, Gene Harlow, I think it was. And the original contract, the original signed contract selling back 10% ownership of Walt Disney Pictures back to Walt Disney for $5,000. Wow. I mean, the, apparently the auction, it, the document went for more than $5,000. I mean, yeah. it, the document sold for more than what, you know, 10% of Walt Disney Pictures was valued at uh, in that time. And, and to my knowledge, they never spoke again. Um, Stalling immediately went over to Warner Brothers and and for the rest of his career did nothing but write Warner it, Brothers Looney Tunes short. From, from the 1930s all the way to the early 60s, he yeah. was based at Warner Brothers. And when you hear the name Carl Stalling, you think of Warner Brothers cartoons, period. You don't yeah. really, a lot of people are surprised when you tell them that uh, Carl Stalling worked at the Walt Disney Studios as the first uh, uh, music director. They don't, they don't realize it but but then uh uh you know this incredible career at warner brothers and by the way i always like to mention this there's a wonderful cd called uh the carl stalling project i think it's a two uh, it's a double cd uh, set uh, of like the best of Carl Stalling cartoon music for Warner Brothers. It's just absolutely fantastic. It's it's fabulous. And if you, you know, if you were a, a young Tiny Toons composer working on that show, it was required you had that CD because uh, you, yeah. you had to absorb uh, everything about the way he wrote. Again, yes, I don't. Uh, just as a fan, I don't. Uh, I don't associate Carl's work with Disney. It's all Looney Tunes, you know. And and just doing my research and and uh, checking out the uh, Byworks stuff, the you know, some classic stuff. Then you were like, oh my gosh, really? That's why it sounds the way it does. <laughs> well, he he had a real knack for hitting things, and yeah. by hitting things, I mean like. Uh, making it look like you wrote a piece of music and then they animated to it. 
and and that's what the 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 skill set. I mean, actually, that's the way they did it on on skeleton dance. They they actually did do it that way. But as time progressed, then they obviously couldn't do that. Um, so it became. Um, you know, necessary for the composer to have the skill to be able to hit these things. And he was a, a master at it. And, and every composer, even now, if you're, if you're doing a comedic animated scene, you're referring to Carl Stalling because he invented the technique uh, for it and, and he was the master. And, and, you know, one of the wonderful things about that, and, and Mark, you and I have done so many scoring sessions together and we've had these conversations. I just love the use of musical instruments as the sound effects, essentially, and those hits you're talking about, whether it's a timpani hit uh, or some other musical instrument that is emphasizing the action that's up on the screen. It, with, without that, you lose so much. You know, and I would just tell the audience, you know, watch a cartoon and, and turn off the sound. Uh, and, and then watch it with the sound volume up a little higher than normal and really listen to how that music hits. It, it's amazing uh, how we react to these things. And, 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 and you know, because we did so many recording sessions, uh, it was very key to cast the right players um, who could uh, who could make those funny sounds? I mean, it's a, a real. If, if, I'm sure the listeners uh, remember Spike Jones and the City Slickers. I mean, uh, he, and if you look at those arrangements, uh, which I was fortunate enough to do one time, the the humor is not on the paper. I mean, the, the paper it looks like a regular arrangement. He would just tell the players, "Hey, I need this here." I'd need, you know, do something funny here. You know, he had his, you know, his cast of lunatic, lunatic musicians who would play these funny sounds. And um, uh, it was just great to uh, to work with those players. You know, they uh, and I knew that at a session, if the musicians were laughing, I knew I had done it. I, I you know, I had I had done my job. That's awesome. The original music videos and the original <laughs> fo and the original Foley, too, because, you know, back in the day. You didn't have sound effects in post-production. You'd have to have the orchestra do everything. And I love that. I, whether it's a trombone slide or if it's a couple cowbells or the timpani, as you said, or a big uh, you know, bass drum uh, being rolled around, you know, whatever the case is, so, you know, someone, someone is there actually triggering those sound effects to make it sound so hilarious. You know, whether it's Clarabelle Cow or Goofy falling off a cliff or whatever it is, it's hilarious. And it's hard. It, the, it I is. mean, this is, you know, music for animation is very difficult. That's the one thing I've heard from so many of the musicians. And and we've worked with, uh, I think, some of the best in the business. Uh, some of the musicians, many of them uh, are in Los Angeles that work in the film industry, are some of the top players that you can get. And we would often, you know, when, when Mark was scoring a project for me, at the company, um, we would often talk and say, oh yeah, you know, we'll have Rick Baptist on trumpet and we'll get Alan Kaplan to come in on the trombone. Uh, Belinda uh, Broughton was always our first violinist of choice. I mean, we, we and all of these people became our friends uh, over the years. I mean, Mark, you worked with them a lot more than me, but I, I felt like I, you know, built friendships up with a lot of these folks uh, because we did so many scoring sessions together. 
Those guys were on the very first session I did for Disney, which was a, a little short featuring a, a character called Bonkers mm -hmm. uh, that they were <clears throat> really just trying out. The Bonkers had not made its way his way through the pipeline yet to have his own series, but an animation studio wanted to try out for Disney, so they animated an eight-minute short, and you know I got a, a shot to to do it and. Um, it seemed to make its way around the company and I, I got hired for more, but those guys were there because it was a comedic slapstick, uh, funny uh, animated short that needed all of those funny, you know, uh, sounds in it to, um, uh, to pull it off. And it was, I must admit, I, I would never have said this at the time, but I did sneak a little bit of Warner Brothers humor into those early Disney gigs that I did. I did Goof Troop and, and then finally the Bonkers series. And then my other half of my career was duplicating the big franchises. I did the series for Little Mermaid and Aladdin. And in those cases, I was asked to duplicate what, what Alan Minken um, uh, had done. So, um, which was, you know, I, I loved doing cause I love those scores and uh, it was great fun to work with, um, you know, slightly bigger orchestras and, and work in that vocabulary. Was Alan involved with any of that? I mean, did no. he have to review any of it or, or you just did, went off nope. and, and, uh, and I mean, they replicated his style. The funny thing is, I mean, I, and I, this was always a, a funny thing for me. I, they, although they owned the music to all those wonderful uh, features that uh, he and Howard Ashman uh, did, of course, they could not duplicate note for note the music in the series without paying Alan a, a, a sizable uh, fee. fee. Yeah. And they just didn't want to do that. So it was easy for them to say, we want it to sound like Alan Minkin, but we don't want to quote Alan Minkin. Got it. And um, uh, there was a... Um, I, you know, it's been so many years, I guess I can tell the story now. When I, uh, It was a big break for me to get The Return of Jafar, which was a uh, the sequel, um, the uh, direct-to-DVD, or at that time, direct-to-video sequel to Aladdin. And originally, that project was supposed to be just a giveaway. They were gonna, I think it was like Burger King was going to give you a video if you bought, you know, um, three hamburgers or something, <laughs> like that, you know, and then Katzenberg uh, came in and saw it, uh, you know, as they do, you know, they check in on projects and they see, and he goes, Hey, you know, this is pretty good. I don't think we need to give this away. Let's sell it. And, and it, it, I think it was the budget on it was like four and a half million and it ended up making 80. And so suddenly the whole direct to video, direct to DVD market was created. But I, I got word, you know, handed down from the head of music, Chris Montan, to Bambi, to me, saying, I don't want to hear a lot of Mark Waters in this score. I want to hear a lot of Alan Minkin in this score. <laughs> so Bambi and I took that to say, okay, well, um, I, I called the music library at, at Disney. They sent over all the original scores from Aladdin. I worked the themes into the picture, and, you know, and it was tough because we, we, we had a good-sized orchestra, but we certainly didn't have as big an orchestra as Alan did. And, you know, it was tough to make, you know, a theme for one scene fit another, but I did it, and it was, you know, great. And we're at the recording session in London, and they had sent a VP of music from the features end over to just make sure everything was going smoothly. And he hears, you know, a whole new world in one of the, the cues and he just went white. Uh, <laughs> he called me into the room and he says, uh, you guys did get permission to use Alan's theme in this, didn't you? And Bambi looked and he says, well, we were told to, to you know, here's the word, word for word. I want to hear a lot of Alan Minkin in this. So he immediately gets on the phone and calls, you know, L.A., which was like, you know, six in the morning or something like that. 
at the time. And, and Chris said, no, that's not what I meant. I, I meant it figuratively. You guys are nuts. Uh, you know, what have you done? And, and so we finished the score. We, they had no, um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the dollar amount, but, but Alan made about 10 times more on that gig than I did. And, and I never got a thank you from him at all. He, you know, the guy should have sent me a, a card thanking me on it, but it was a lesson to me about how copyrights work. So then I became a master at, at getting real close to it. You know, when I did the little mermaid series and then subsequently the Aladdin TV series, um, we were able to capture that, you know, that sound uh, without quoting, you know, and occasionally they would want to quote a melody, so they would pay and they'd get it and we'd use yeah. it in something. Can I uh, just throw out a question here? Uh, and I, I, I think this is something that I, Al John, uh, I, I think is very interesting. Mark, tell us why you record in London. Well, um, there is something in the musicians union contract called the secondary market um, royalty. And it is a, a trivial amount really in the overall um, scheme of things, frankly. Uh, it is a, but it's basically 1% of the gross of the secondary market goes into a fund for musicians who played on whatever project. And they keep very accurate records. If you played on Beauty and the Beast and you played on The Little Mermaid and you played on Star Wars, you got, you know, money for that. Uh, producer, and it, it has nothing to do with the first release of the, of the movie. It's when it goes to the secondary market. You know, Expl Explain what the secondary market is. Mark well, Mark. If, it, if it's sold overseas, if, it, if, it's, if it's sold onto a DVD, if it appears on television, uh, that's the secondary market. Um, and, um, uh, and it, it, you know, it, it's a sizable chunk of money, uh, but it's spread out over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, thousands of musicians. And to avoid the paying that royalty, um, film, uh, filmmakers, film studios will go to alternate places to record. Um, and there are numerous of them. The, the, only place in the world that has musicians that are comparable to Los Angeles is London. And, and, and also they have recording studios that are comparable to uh, Los Angeles and A Abbey road, Abbey road, like, yeah. Lindhurst. Uh, these are, you know, magnificent shrines to orchestral recording. So, um, it, and the musicians are incredible over there. They're, they're stunning. So uh, the composers, enjoy working over there as well because they get great musicians and, and all. But um, I think everybody would prefer to work here in Los Angeles um, or here. I'm, I no longer live in LA, but I mean in Los Angeles because it, it's just easier. I mean, the, the filmmakers can, can find it. They don't have to go to uh, London or Europe uh, uh, to attend the recording sessions. They can, you know, um, they're able to continue with their business while they're there in Los Angeles to do the recording sessions. But it's, it's a, it's a, a very heated issue amongst musicians. Should they get rid of that uh, royalty? Because they're asked to do that every three years when the contract comes up for negotiation. It is a, a very heated issue. Should we get rid of it so we can keep more work in Los Angeles? Obviously, the musicians who are uh, benefiting from this royalty, and there are some who are benefiting um, quite a lot uh, because they play on all the sessions, they're being asked, well, we want you to make a lot less money so that people who are not as good as you can work more. So you can understand why they're not wanting to do it. And, and uh, so it, the, the argument continues. But I, I have to say I'm in favor of it because it attracts a level of musician to Los Angeles that otherwise would not. 
if you if you took that away, I mean, there are, are world class, as you know, just world class musicians who live in L.A. because of the recording industry. And you take that that big carrot away from them, and I just don't think the um, the industry could support uh, the level of musicianship that they have now. Yeah, same can be said for Music City here in Nashville. So I I, I totally understand, Mark. Um, you know the the challenges I can only imagine. But the level of musicianship on on anything, whether it's television, direct to video, or just the regular, you know, the regular release, theatrical releases, is still very impressive. Well, Nashville, um, interesting enough, has, has become a real um, viable alternative to Los Angeles because Tennessee is a right to work state, so musicians can choose to do non union work. Uh, without being punished by the union. Uh, the other alternative is Seattle. Uh, but uh, in recent years, I mean, very recent years, Nashville, they've built a brand new studio there. They're really um, um, courting film productions to come to Nashville uh, as an alternative. And you don't have to pay that royalty if you do. So now, wow, okay, this is a big deal. Now I don't have to travel all the way to you know Budapest to record my score, I can do it in Nashville. And, and you, you mentioned Budapest. The, the, uh, aside from London, there's been a lot going on in, uh, oh, in, Pro- in Prague and, and Budapest and places Bulgaria, like that. Um, yeah. um, and, and, and oftentimes I, I'm understanding the conductors or the composers aren't even going there. They're doing it via uh, a Zoom or, or, or so, some sort of video conference. Well, there's a big um, drop in the cost after you leave London. The further east you go, the cheaper it gets. And um, uh, yes, they've got now um, companies that um, you don't even have to be there. They can hook it up and, and you can watch it go down live. You can make comments to the um, uh, to the conductor uh, who's there, you know, change this, fix that. Okay, we're happy with that. Let's move on. Um, the, the musicianship is... is not as good. Uh, they're not, and, and I want to say they're very fine players, but they're not used to quickly reading, sight reading something and then playing it immediately perfectly. And, and also the studios are not quite as good. So, I mean, you do, you know, you do get what you pay for, but particularly, gosh, for, for small projects, um, um, uh, I mean, the Game of Thrones, every score for Game of Thrones was recorded in Prague and the composer was never there. Um, everything was was done remotely um, because it was the type of score that could be done that way. Um, can you can you just uh, tell the audience a little bit about the fact that the musicians come in to a recording session? That's the first time they're seeing the score. It is amazing, uh, and and that's why when you were saying back earlier when animation music, um, you know, in many cases can be very challenging. I mean, these are you know, really fast tempos and you're having to hit things. So in order to hit things, you have to, you know, drop a beat very, you know, without people noticing it. And it makes the musicians have to really be on the ball. And, you know, you're recording sometimes four to five minutes of music per hour. And um, that's a special kind of musician that can uh, quickly not only just sight read and get the notes, but to sight read it 
and and really make music out of it. The first time they they play it, it's just astounding. One of my uh, pieces that it, it's on my main demo reel. I mean, or my main show reel. Uh, it was the end credits to Aladdin and the King of Thieves. And this is an interesting story. They did not want to do an end credit for that. Uh, they just felt like, you know, we'll just, you know, uh, the music editor will just slice things together and that'll be the end credit. That's normally the way it was done for projects like that. But I, um, I, I was, you know, really wanting to, to write a main title that came out of the last scene of the, of the film. And I um, had a theme that I thought would be great. So I... I um, had my orchestrators put together a, a, a really cool end credit. I sketched it out in my hotel room in London, faxed it over to the my guys in L.A. They faxed it back. We got the parts the morning of the session. And there were literally, we had four minutes left in the session. And, and over time, I mean, starts one second after the hour. There is no, you know, leeway at all. There's no grace period or anything. And so Bambi, you know, who was, you know, very, very strict with, you know, budgets and time and all that stuff, as soon as that was her job, said, you got four minutes, okay? And this, this end credit was like, you know, 90 seconds. So we read it down once and it was pretty good and we had time for one more take. And it was brilliant. I mean, just after one one uh, read through, and that's what's on the movie, you know. And and it's it's a, a dazzling performance. I mean, I just love it. You know, Mark. Uh, before we continue, just so you know, I'm going to splice in some of these uh, these music collections that you've done uh, in oh, this good, podcast, good. so people can listen to how awesome your your arrangements are and the things that you've created, the the composing that you've done. In fact, here is an example. This is your music for Disney's Get a Horse, which opened for Frozen. It's black and white, animated, with a little bit of a twist. And here's some of your music for that score. It's just fascinating to me. Being a musician, um, not being the best sight reader in the world, I, I was uh, I studied music education and I in percussion, and I was a pretty decent sight reader. But to do that skill, as you mentioned, because you dropped so much, so many little nuggets, you know, in this interview thus far, but just going in reading cold, not knowing the music, not knowing the tempo, having to. Do the things the conductor, the 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 writer, the composer is trying to to do to service the music, to service the the film, but then also follow a conductor is crazy. It's just so much going on. And you got this metronome going in your ear. That's right. Uh, you know that's banging away like you know nobody. You know musicians are trained to use metronomes when they're studying a a, a particular piece and they slow it down and tick tock. But to have that going in and then with tempo changes and meter changes and, you know, they're just, you know, just plowing through it um, um, with that, you know, with the greatest of ease. It, it, it marvels me. And it it's interesting. Sight reading is a skill that's really only required 
in settings like that. Uh, orchestras, you know, professional orchestras have it in their contract that musicians are, are you never put a piece of music in front of an orchestra um, and expect them to sight read it um, at a rehearsal. You're not allowed to do that. So if you've been hired to, uh, to write a new piece, if you have a commission or you're doing arrangements for a show, if you don't turn it in, you know, four weeks before the first rehearsal, it's canceled because you are not allowed to do that. So it's interesting now that I'm, I'm, I'm teaching uh, here at the Eastman School of Music, I find that the young musicians, um, uh, are, they don't have that skill. And I, I'm, I have spoken to other department chairs and you know, instrumental teachers. You should encourage your students to play my, my students' recording sessions because if you don't, there's no avenue for them to learn the value of sight reading. And, and if they go into a commercial, um, um, even if, you know, part of their career is in a commercial uh, world, they're going to have to be skilled at, at doing this. And, you know, studio musicians, like what we were talking about earlier, I mean, if you're on the A list of studio players, you make a very nice living, far better than a symphony orchestra musician um, would would be making. So there's a, a, a viable reason to learn to be a good sight reader. But I'm like you when I was playing. I boy, I I was a terrible sight reader. Oh, juries were juries were painful. Juries oh, were su yes. super painful. I remember William Ludwig from the Ludwig Drum Company uh, stopped into one of my juries when I was playing. I was playing four four mallet marimba timpani and snare and. Uh, he was like, well, son, that was pretty good. You went through it really fast, but this is how you should play it. And, you know, this is Ludwig of the Ludwig Drum Company, you know, and he's sitting there with, you know, a traditional grip just rattling off this drum piece like it was nobody's business. And I said, you know what? I think I'm, I think I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> you know, super competitive. But here's a question for you. You know, Mark, you started playing saxophone. How did you... Did you always compose music as, as a musician, just kind of getting into that and then being, I guess, hired on to do film scores? Is that how you fell upon that? Just working in a, in a studio setting and then being drafted all of a sudden, this is, this is now what I'm going to do. I'm going to compose music for TV and film. No, I, uh, you know, my, if we go all the way back to college, um, I was raised in Texas and Texas is known for its uh, very good public school music programs. They, um, <clears throat> I don't know if they're as good now, but I mean, back then, um, there was a joke that the three most powerful people in a Texas town was one, the high school football coach, second was the Baptist preacher and third was the band director. Uh, they just love bands in Texas. So I yeah. went to USC, came out to California because I, I wanted to study with a saxophone uh, teacher there, but I always wanted to be a high school band director. And the, the way the program was structured that you didn't do any student teaching until your senior year. So I, I you know, was taking all the music ed courses and you know, thinking I was just gonna go back to Texas and be a band director. And then I did my first bit of public school music student teaching. And I learned, boy, uh, public school music teaching is not for me. I mean, it, it, I have such re high regard and respect for the people who do it and do it well. 
um, because it's not really about the music. It's about teaching children to be creative and to take um, or, you know, be disciplined and work as a team. And some people respond to athletics for that. Some people respond to drama. But music is a great way to teach those things. If you become a good musician uh, as a result of that, that's a bonus. But uh, to teach those, to be a high school band director, it's a, uh, it's about all those other lessons. So I changed my major, graduated with a performance degree, and then just became a starving saxophonist in L.A., which there were plenty of. And uh, I saw an ad. You know, I was doing a little arranging. I was doing a little um, conducting. I was doing some playing. And, you know, scraping by, living in a, you know, a horrible um, apartment in a funky part of town. And I, you know, just thought, well, this is what my life is going to be. And then I, I saw an ad in the L.A. Times for the UCLA Extension, had a course, uh, Introduction to Film Scoring. And I had $300 burning a hole in my pocket. And I thought, yeah, you know, this will be fun. You know, I've always liked film music. And it just, a, a bell went off. Uh, the man who taught it was a music supervisor at CBS. His name was Don Ray, and he had done music for the original Twilight Zone and the original Hawaii Five-0. And he was a great man and a great teacher. And he took me under his wing and he helped me get my first work, you know, which was basically, you know, horrible little low budget things that I would do for free. And, and that's how most composers start. You know, they'll, they'll, if they don't have an uncle that's running a film studio, they, they start out on these low budget things. And one thing, you know, I mean, I, I was in the trenches orchestrating and ghostwriting for people for eight years before I got my name on a, on an episode of tiny tunes. So it was tiny little baby steps uh, that I was taking, you know, one thing after another. And I was really glad that I had that because I, you know, I was learning on the job. So, I mean, if, if a fluke had happened and I had gotten a, a, let's say a movie at the very beginning, I would have had no idea how to do it. I mean, and it would have been a horrible disaster and that would have been the end of it. But I was fortunate that I, you know, uh, got to orchestrate and ghostwrite for some really talented, wonderful composers who were very encouraging and said, no, 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 Mark, do it. next time do it this way. Don't do this. Don't ever do this. And, you know, the things like that. And so when it came time to do uh, Tiny Tunes, I first orchestrated a couple of episodes for a fellow named Richard Stone, who later became the the staff composer for all those Warner Brothers uh, cartoons of that in that era, Animaniacs and Freakazoid and Pinky in the Brain. And he, I orchestrated for him and then got my own episode. And, you know, so I knew what I was doing. I knew how to do that style of music. And then, um, like I said, I, I moved over to Disney and, and Rich and I became, you know, we, we remained dear friends. He was kind of the go-to person at Warner Brothers. I was the go-to person at, at Disney in the 90s. And it, it was so funny. I mean, um, uh, the, the, the guy, I remember the guy at head of music at Warner Brothers, um, uh, Doug Frank, whenever he would see me, he said, you traitor. You traitor! <laughs> How could you do that to us? You I know? get it. And he was—he, you know, he was sort of kidding, but he wasn't entirely kidding. Uh, but Doug, Doug is a great guy. But um, it was fun. Mark, I was gonna uh, uh, ask you uh, about you—you know—you're composing and conducting the recording sessions for all of these uh, film and, and animation projects, but 
how did you segue into doing conducting for the Star Wars concerts? And, and if you could just talk a little bit about that. And that sort of dovetails with a, uh, uh, a listener question that's come in that we're going to address in a little bit. But, but I do wanted to, uh, I, di- I did want you to talk a little bit about that whole Star Wars concert business. Well, I had um, had amassed some conducting credits. Um, you know, I had done two Olympics. Uh, I was a music director in 96 in Atlanta and then the music director uh, for the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, get introduced to Tricia Yearwood, a, a wonderful country music artist. Um, and she was wanting to do some orchestral uh, arrangements. Uh, of, of some of her bigger hits. And so I did some touring with her and, and got to conduct some, um, you know, some of the best orchestras in the country as a result of working with her. And uh, my agent um, uh, got me uh, uh, an introduction to the guys who were producing Star Wars in concert. And um, uh, it had to be approved by John Williams, um, who was going to be doing that. And I was very honored that he, he gave the, uh, the okay, because uh, he had seen my, you know, we'd work at the, um, um, the Olympics together. And then also a, um, um, he had asked me to co-conduct the Academy Awards in 2002 with him. Um, so he knew my work and gave the, uh, the approval. And, um, um, and so I did four, four tours. Uh, with that, including one in Japan, which was a, a great, great experience. Here's a clip of Mark Waters conducting Yoda's theme for Star Wars in concert featuring the Tokyo Philharmonic. great superstars i mean you've been on the road you've worked with a lot of i guess iconic pop culture musicians over the years do you have a particular story about some of the a uh, funny story maybe that uh, of people that you've worked with that wow just took you off guard whether it was something that did in a performance or in a rehearsal or or just just an interesting anecdote about working with some of these people well i i we we did a, a wonderful TV special in 2008 called Movies Rock, and it was a, a lavishly produced TV special that they brought in, you know, really popular, um, um, you know, pop performers and had them sing classic movie songs. So, you know, we had John Legend and Mary J. Bly singing As Time Goes By from Casablanca. Um, we had Carrie Underwood singing The Sound of Music. Uh, they had, um, um, 
you know, people like that doing, you know, uh, this, and it was um, this wonderful shot live um, TV special that was done at the, uh, at the, then the Kodak theater um, um, now called the, uh, the Dolby theater. And, and, and the opening act of that was uh, Beyonce. And, you know, my gosh, uh, Beyonce was, you know, was and still is legendary. And she wanted to sing Over the Rainbow. So um, one of the, um, the, the uh, we had three people work on this arrangement. Um, I did the intro. Then the, the first half of it was a, a, a classic arrangement by a, a, a brilliant arranger named Marty Page, who was a legend in, in the, you know, the 50s and 60s in, in variety show TV. You know, and those, those guys really knew how to arrange. This is where Nelson Riddle and Don Costa and all these guys came out of. Um, these were the, 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 the great geniuses of arranging and apparently he had done this arrangement of over the rainbow and it had never uh, the, the record project got canceled and it never got performed and it had this this vintage just beautiful um string writing and then it went into this cool r&b feel uh, of it and so it had these three sections to the song and she loved it and and you can go on youtube and find it it, it is a um um uh, you'll see my left arm conducting um my 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 brush with fame uh there <laughs> but it um um it it was a uh, david page who was a, a member of toto uh, was the um, um, associate music director on it. Um, and and he said, you know, my dad did this arrangement. He always talked about, but it never got played. You know, I'd love to just bring it in. And so it was kind of like, you know, we I ended up giving the arrangement and all the parts to Beyonce. And, and I told her, I said, this would be like, you know, if... Lena Horne had a dress that she had made for her and it was never worn. And here it is. You're, you know, I want you to, you know, this beautiful, glamorous, stunning dress of from another era. And I want you to have it. And I mean, it was it, it was kind of like that. And, and oh, my gosh, she just sang it so beautifully. And it's really cool how, you know, it, it goes into this uh, very cool R&B kind of, you know, um, uh, groove to it. And the song just works you know, fabulous. Someday I'll wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Way above the chimney tops That's where
that was a highlight um, from that. But I got to, you know, meet, you know, all these incredible people and they were, you know, so nice and so excited to be there. And, and the, the musicians, Steve Jordan was the co-music director on that project. Steve Jordan was the drummer for the original David Letterman band and produced um, the first, I think, four John Mayer albums. And so uh, Steve was brilliant with rhythm sections and I was good with orchestra musicians. So the two of us, we just had this, this, this orchestra just sounding so great. And, um, uh, we, and, and we became good friends. It was a really fun gig. And unfortunately, we were going to do it again the next year, but the money um, collapsed and uh, the, uh, the gig got canceled. Uh, we were already in meetings about, okay, what, what songs do we want to do now? What artists do we want to bring in now? Um, and it, it, it just didn't happen, sadly. And that's that's a shame, but uh, people can relive that when they yeah, listen to the yeah. clip. For there sure. are several. I mean, I think the the Mary J. Blige, John Legend performances on YouTube. Um, I know Carrie's uh, performance of Sound of Music, and that was my arrangement uh, that she did. Um, uh, and she wanted to do it because her mother loved that musical, so that's why she wanted to do it. Um, and, um, uh, and she, you know, she was a, a dream to work with. Um, you know, the people that are really stars. I mean, they're stars you know, for a reason. I mean, they, they, yes, they may be charismatic and they may be beautiful and they may be, you know, they can light up a stage, but they, they're also really talented. Sure. And, and it's been my experience that, you know, they're, they're, it, it, it's rare that, that it's a fluke that somebody got to that level. Uh, they got there because they were really talented, uh, gifted. You know, briefly, Mark, uh, you know, 2020, uh, is going to be remembered for so many bad reasons. But one of the good things is it's the 80th anniversary of Fantasia, and it's the 20th anniversary of Fantasia 2000. I worked on Fantasia 2000, uh, and I certainly have done a tremendous amount of research into Fantasia. But just as a as a composer, conductor, musician, you know, what's what's your impressions of Fantasia and Fantasia 2000? That the Fantasia concept, if you will. Well, I, I, I mean, gosh, I'll try to do this briefly. I'm, you don't go into being a film composer if you're wanting to be the star. I mean, you, you, you acknowledge the fact that you are contributing something that if you do your job right, people won't even notice what you've done. And, and you have to be happy with that. You are collaborating. You're being told, no, I want the music to do this and then this and then this. Okay, fine. That's what I'll do and I'll give it to you and hopefully you'll like it. Uh, but every once in a while, a project comes along like Fantasia where music is the star. And, and it is, that's why these two films are remarkable because, you know, here we have a chance for music to be the star and everything else is being put in around it. Um, so, I, I mean, it was so legendary when, when the original Fantasia came out. I mean, the, the, first of all, I mean, the skill in the animation is extraordinary. I mean, every frame of it is so brilliant and, and, and the interpretations to it and, and, you know, uh, why not have Mickey Mouse do The Sorcerer's Apprentice? Why not? I mean, uh, you know, why not have dinosaurs in the, the Rite of Spring? You know, and, and it was so daring. And, and, you know, and nowadays you'd have a whole committee of financiers saying, no, that'll never sell. We're never going to do that. Forget it. But, but Walt, you know, he was the final voice. And so he could say, we're doing this. I think this would be great. It'll be well, our 
Yeah, you know, part of the issue with Fantasia was that he was he was trying to do a short for Mickey Mouse to raise Mickey's star uh, uh, again because towards the end of the 30s, Mickey was being eclipsed by Donald Duck and some of the other characters, and of course, uh, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was so groundbreaking. But uh, he he wound up spending so much money on that short, they knew they were never going to recoup the cost. So the guy was a genius to say, well, let's make it part of a, uh, a concert feature. And, and essentially it's sort of taking the silly symphonies concept uh, and, uh, and pumping it full of steroids into a feature, you know? And, uh, and I, I thought it was a wonderful concept uh, and, and thoroughly uh, uh, love watching Fantasia. And I was just so honored to be part of Fantasia 2000. Uh, and, and that really was done because of Roy E. Disney and his passion to continue that um, uh, a concept uh, that his uncle came up with. Well, they're spectacular movies. I mean, Fantasia 2000, um, um, I mean, it, it, it may not have the, the pizzazz of being the first one, which the, the original Fantasia was so remarkable, but I think the, the, the talent involved uh, on Fantasia 2000 is every bit as dazzling as the original one. Um, um, I loved it. I loved watching the movie, and I... Um, um, you know, it's hard to imagine that they would do it again because, you know, the projects like that need a Roy Disney or a yeah. Walt Disney, you know, uh, saying, no, let's do this. Let's do this. And you know, uh, before Roy passed away, uh, we were actually having conversations uh, uh, about doing a, 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 another Fantasia. It was going to be a Fantasia world where each segment was uh, music that was representative of a different culture around the world. Oh, wow. You know, uh, Argentinian tango and uh, um, Russian symphonic. Uh, there was a Japanese piece. Um, there was an Indian piece, uh, you know, and they, they really, I, I mean, it was a great concept of, of just sort of bringing the world together and showcasing world culture. Uh, and, and, and that unfortunately uh, died with, uh, with Roy. You know, it says so much about the type of man Roy was. Um, you you knew him a lot better than I did. I I met him one time in his office because I was brought in to um, score th four nature documentaries. He wanted to bring back another um, bit of his early Disney history, the True Life Adventures. Yeah. And um, so I had to uh, bring in my first demos and play them for him. And, uh, oh, my gosh, what a, a wonderful, nice, supportive. I mean, I can say that because he really liked my music. So <laughs> he could have hated it. And then I would be saying completely other things about it. But he was, he was very supportive and very nice. And, and we talked about, you know, the original uh, Paul Smith and, you know, the guys who were the original composers of, uh, of that. And fortunately, you know, I'm a big fan of history, so I could talk about uh, their music and, and why I loved it so much. And, and he really wanted 
to, I mean, these documentaries were, were different from those, but they, it did have an element of, you know, bringing these animals into your world. And, and they, they would do that by, you know, um, nature documentaries are very different than they were back then. But these were, they still had the charm and some of the humor that the original ones had. And he was very glad that, that we did that. Um, well, he's, he's really missed, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah. We wish he was still around. Uh, Al John, I, uh, I, I mean, I think we could sit here and talk with Mark for probably two or three hours. Gosh, and, yes. And Mark, we are going to have to have you back. I would love uh, to. I would love to. Uh, uh, periodically, because we haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't talked about uh, the uh, Oswald cartoons, uh, the the uh, live orchestration to the cartoons we did at some of the classic theaters in, in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah. And, yeah. and where you keep uh, your Emmys, for heaven's sake. Yeah, I can see one on the shelf back oh, uh, you can behind you. I see, I see one. Yeah. But but you know something? Um, I, I, as we we get down to the end of our third episode, it's hard to believe our, our of our new podcast here. Uh, we have been encouraging uh, listeners to send us questions, Al John, and we got a. Very interesting question. Wait, 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 uh, Dave. You mean you say that we got some email in the email bag? That's right. We okay. got some email. Oh, Skull Rock Podcast answers your email. You know, I have to play the drops. That's it. I, mean, <laughs> fantastic. I, mean, I spent time producing it. We might as well That's play the awesome. drops, Dave. But, yeah. but we got a great question from Spencer yes. in Pennsylvania. I love Pennsylvania. I do too. Um, and Spencer wrote to us and he said, do you recall seeing Star Wars when it was released in 1977? And in if so, do you remember your thoughts and impressions? Would you have thought it would spawn the franchise it has become? So, Mark, I know, you know, because you, you mentioned it early on. You, you saw it 15 times in 1977. Is it P.E.? I, I, I told this story to Anthony Daniels, um, who was the, um, you know, C-3PO, and he was the star of the Star Wars in Concert show. He was the narrator that the audience through because he's the only character that's been in all of the Star Wars movies. And I, I, I kind of knew we were, the producer of the Japan tour took us all out for dinner after the last show. And I kind of had a feeling this was going to be the last time I did this show because they were starting to mount um, uh, performances of each individual movie um, uh, live in concert. And that was going to replace this wonderful, you know, kind of, um, greatest hits of the 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 first six um, movies, and so I felt it was okay for me to to tell what an impression the original Star Wars had made on me in 1977. Um, um, I didn't want to miss you know this last opportunity, and I, I remember you know it was right after school got out you know so it was like May I, I guess in 77 late May. And I was hanging out. I was still living around school, and I was at the place where you practice, the practice rooms. And the musicians, we all hung out there, and we were, you know, chatting. And somebody said, let's go to a movie. And I said, oh, okay, what do you want to see? And they said, well, this is a science fiction movie that's out. And, and at the t I remember thinking at the time, 
science fiction, really? You guys want to go to a science fiction movie? Because science fiction at that time was nothing. I mean, it was like, you know, the, the cheesy Japanese, you know, Godzilla movies, and you could see the wires hanging on the jets when they'd fly over and drop bombs on it. I mean, <laughs> it, it was such a, a, a cheesy genre. I remember thinking, God, really? Um, and, and so we, we went, I, and I went, and I suppose this is what was uh, unique about, you know, being at this age. I had no idea what to expect. And I'm sitting in the theater, and, and I was, you know, with a, you know, a friend of mine, and that first opening thing when the ship comes over your head, you know, and, and the whole room is vibrating, you know, and the, and the, the realism of it, you know, the, so, I mean, we, we have to give credit not only to John's wonderful music, but the, you know, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, THX Sound, all those things just kind of shot the genre up about 12 notches. And it's the only movie where I, I just turned to my friend and just said, do you want to just stay and see it again? He went, yeah. So we just <laughs> sat in the seat and watched it again. Um, you know, I've never done that in a, in a movie. Uh, and now you can't because they force you out of the theater. But um, it, it made such an impression uh, on me. And, of course, that was before I had any inkling at all that I was going to be a composer. So, I mean, I was enthralled with the music, but it was more just the, the experience uh, of it. And, um, you know, obviously I was not alone in that. Al, Al John, you are a huge Star Wars fan. I mean, do you remember your first, uh, when you first saw it? I, you know, I was told that my parents took me because I, I, you know, I was born in 74. So I was wee, wheelie, wheelie, wheelie small. Uh, but I was told that I went to the theater. Uh, my parents took me to go see it. God bless everybody that was around him, I'm sure. Um, but I didn't see Star Wars until it came out on VHS, but I did see Empire Strikes Back in a theater. But I can tell you that even, even with the second film, I don't think every anyone knew that it was going to become the juggernaut that it was to become. I think that, yes, they sold a lot of toys, and yes, they celebrated over a year and a half of being in the theater for the first run, and the second movie did really, really well. The third movie did even better, and of course, now looking in hindsight, yeah, awesome. It was a nice trilogy. Who knew that it was going to become what it is today? In fact, a lot of the the, the writers, in fact, Roger Ebert, didn't have high expectations from it. You can look back at his review uh, on the film, which is still out there today. Uh, basically, he says that perhaps the long sequence at the end of the trench run was a little bit too long, but he did like the people. He liked the fact that you know the cast worked really well. And a lot of people say the New Yorker said it was exhausting, uh, to say the least. Some people said that it was witty but lacked uh, a certain something right and so it was a mixed bag i think from a lot of the the really big uh reviewers at the time um but who knew who knew you know and i have to tell you just my experience uh i was in high school when it came out and uh i you know i i enjoyed it uh and i've i've seen all of the star wars films in the theaters uh i mean i'm i'm just a huge movie fan so i i always go to the movies and uh, uh it made an impression on me but uh not as vigorously as uh some of you guys 
I I typically like I, I think I've seen a few of the Star Wars movies uh, more than one time, uh, you know. But uh, we're talking maybe two or three times, uh, not fifteen like Mark uh, said uh, with the first one. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Isn't it funny though how Star Wars has affected you know Mark and well all of our lives, but definitely Mark it it inspired you. It opened up a world for you, and it, uh, it opened up a world for a lot of people. I know that composer um, Michael Giacchino felt the same way when when he uh, started doing this, also worked in Star Wars as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, whether you, you like film, it op- awakened people of that era to film and soundtracks and special effects and, and filmmaking and a bunch of different things, and it's just amazing how many ships uh, that film has launched in the creative community. And continues to do so. Yeah. It had an enormous effect on um, the music industry in L.A. It brought back large orchestra scores. Um, you know, between Spielberg and Lucas, they they brought back a, a genre of score um, that had been lost. Uh, for Where you, were, you had 90 and 120-piece orchestras. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, well, there, I, yeah. that's, yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh I was going to say, I know we're, we're, we're running out of time, but I have one extra question for you, Mark. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you who your favorite composer was. Well, I, I, it would have to be John. I mean, I, I, uh, I, John Williams, John Williams. Uh, <laughs> yes. It is the, um, he's not only just great at, at themes, um, uh, and it's funny, you know, I, I tell my students this a lot, you know, the, the, the scenes that inspire us to go into this, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the opening of Star Wars, the asteroid chase in um, Empire Strikes Back, the, you know, the great heroic chases in Raiders and Superman and all these E.T. and all these movies. Those are the scores. That's the scenes that inspire you to go into this. But after you do it a while, you start to appreciate the other scenes that have music that really no one's going to notice. And you marvel at, at somebody like John's ability to just change one note and suddenly the whole emotional uh, direction of the scene has changed. He has such command of harmonic vocabulary, rhythmic vocabulary. He's a brilliant orchestrator. Um, and, and, you know, he just he knows how to get inside the DNA of a, of a story and find what is what it needs. I mean, you know, I mean, there are other, you know, I have other, you know, Jerry Goldsmith and, you know, more recently Danny Elfman and Tom Newman. These are all uh, composers that uh, I, I marvel at. And, and Well, you could say the entire Newman family. No yes, kid. I mean, you know. it's like, what, three generations uh, yes. uh, of composers? I mean, it's just phenomenal. It must yeah. be in the water, it's in the DNA. In the, it's something in the DNA. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Well, it's amazing. I have to say, this has been a wonderful uh, hour with you, Mark. It's so good to see. It's been you. so much fun to, to, to chat with you guys. I, we're, I, well, we're going to have yeah. you back. Uh, Wonderful. Uh, talking about different topics and whatnot for sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We got to talk more. And uh, I have to know when things get back to normal. Maybe Mark would be visiting your town when Star Wars in concert comes back. I hope that would be nice. That would be amazing, right? Anyway, if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Now available on Apple Podcasts, so please check that out on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us those likes, 
Give us those reviews. Like us on social media. And be sure to visit the site for all things Skull Rock Podcast at SkullRockPodcast.com. And leave us those emails. Yeah, right, Dave? Yep, that's right, Al John. And thank you uh, uh, to Spencer in Pennsylvania for his great question. And don't forget that uh, you can email us at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John at skullrockpodcast.com and I would say uh, this is a wrap isn't it Al John it's a wrap and also special thanks to Mark Waters and check out markwaters.com for all of his great credits his music is on SoundCloud on your favorite of course Disney soundtracks Warner Brothers I mean MGM movies what haven't you done Mark you've done it all thank Thank you Mark thank Thank you you thank you Thank you.